So let's go now to God's word, Exodus chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 21. Then, and this is in response to God having just spoken to Moses. What we read and processed through last week is God giving Moses the instructions for his people on how they can pass through God's judgment over sin in the land of Egypt. Then, verse 21, Moses called all of the elders, all the leaders of Israel together, and he said to them, go, select lambs for yourselves, do so according to your clans or your families, and kill for yourselves the Passover lamb. Take then a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop you can think of as maybe like uh, broom tree branches or straw, just a bundle of herbs basically that can function as a paintbrush. Take those and dip them into the blood that is in the basin. So when you kill a lamb for sacrifice, you drain the blood out of it and keep it briefly. Dip the hyssop in the blood and then touch the lintel, which runs across the top of your door and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord is going to pass through. He's coming to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, Yahweh, will pass over the door. He will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. This is Moses echoing God's word to him from last week. This is going to continue to be something you will observe. It starts tonight. You'll do it annually from now on. He says in verse 25, When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, just as he has promised to give to you, you shall keep this service. You're going to keep doing this even after God delivers you. And when your children say to you, why are we doing this? Moses has a little parenting insight for us, right? How many times have you sat down to do something meaningful like family devotions with your kids and they're just like, why are we doing this? What is going on? Well, Moses gives you an answer. He says, when they say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say, this is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. Here's what God did. He passed over the houses of the people of Israel while they were still in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Now hear the people's response. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. They can feel that this is holy. That finally, after plague upon plague upon plague, God has personally involved them. He's inviting them to participate in their own salvation. And their response to that is worship. They can sense that God is moving, that he's working, that something's about to change. It's going to be dramatic and potentially permanent for them to the point that they will annually recognize this day forever, God says, without end. And their response is to worship, to say thank you to God, to acknowledge in their hearts what they know to be true in their heads. Verse 28, and then the people of Israel went and they did so. They did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. On April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh detonated 5,000 pounds of explosives in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Some of us were alive then, you may remember that. The explosion destroyed the entire north side of this nine-story building, and it killed 168 people in less than one minute. Timothy was caught, he was later charged, and died. He was executed by lethal injection six years later, in June of 2001, at the age of 33. And in many ways... If you know much about his life, he is a modern example of the personality, the psyche of the pharaoh of Egypt. Both men thought that they were unstoppable. Both of these men would easily fall into the classic category of narcissist. Both were deeply troubled by 
authority over them in their lives. Both were very upset at the idea that anybody would put boundaries around their ability to do what they want. And both were unwilling or maybe even unable to clearly see their own inner evil. And therefore, they lived without remorse for the loss of life that they had caused. Now, in Timothy's case, a few days before his execution, he released a written statement to the press. This is typical for a death row inmate to provide a last statement to their family or to the community, to the victim of their crime, or just to generally sort of make their peace as best that they want to do. This week in study, I came across several online databases of these last statements, and I want to read three of them to you quickly. These are just examples of typical last statements from death row inmates. First, a man said this. He said, I would like to thank God. I would like to thank my dad, my Lord Jesus, Savior, for saving me and for changing my life. I want to apologize to my in-laws for causing all this emotional pain. I love y'all, and I consider y'all my sisters that I never had, and I want to thank you for forgiving me. Second, a man said, by no means am I happy for what I've done. I have asked the Lord to forgive me. Please tell everyone, because I'm certain I left off some names. Previous to this statement, he'd released a long list of people to whom he wanted to give a direct apology for his sins. He says, tell my kids I'm sorry for being a disappointment to them. Thank you and God bless. And then finally, a man said, I would like to apologize to the victim's family and to all the grief that I've caused them. I would like to say that I love the girls who are standing next to them So praise the Lord, and let's go, warden. That's it. Man makes his statement into the microphone, walks into the lethal injection room, and his life is over. Can you hear their theme? These men are sorry. These men are not standing at death's door, bracing themselves for what's coming, believing that everybody else is wrong and they are right. They have come to understand, they've come to embody repentance, a request for forgiveness, a desire to be different. I read hundreds of these this week, and they are almost all just like that. These men, faced with their own inner darkness, cry out for help, and they find it in Jesus. That's where they find help. But Timothy McVeigh's final statement was nothing like that. He submitted his statement in written form. He was unwilling to speak to the press, and his statement said nothing personal. It did not reference his family. He did not talk about remorse. He did not mention any kind of interchange at all. Instead, Timothy wrote out the famous William Ernest Henley poem, Invictus. He wrote it out by hand. This is the final stanza of that poem. This is Timothy's last thing, his idea, his concept to speak into the world as he goes to die. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Had William Ernest Henley lived in ancient Egypt, I believe the Pharaoh could have just as easily quoted Invictus to Moses as Moses stood in his throne room in Exodus chapter 11, condemning his actions and promising that God was going to send a final plague of death. Totally unrepentant was Pharaoh, even as he stood at the door of death. The promise God had made him seven chapters earlier before he ever dispensed the first plague was if you do not let my son Israel go, this people, I will take from you your own son. I'm going to do that if you make me, if we get there and you are unrepentant. As we mentioned two weeks ago, Pharaoh is totally unhinged at this point. He's lost his decorum. He's lost his ability to hold himself like a statesman and present himself as somehow divine by nature. He is truly broken, yet he retains all of the power and influence he's had for his entire life. So what do you think he's doing right now? 
Is he preparing to repent? Is he just about to fall on his knees finally and say to God, better your way than my own? No, I believe, if anything, the Pharaoh is plotting to further oppress and abuse the Israelites, to wrench back his influence and strength from this group of people who he believe are putting him to shame. Meanwhile, Yahweh is preparing his people to survive the wrath that God will show against the pride of humanity. Let's read now the 10th plague, beginning in verse 29 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That sentence alone, you could just sit with for an hour. I mean, just try to imagine what that really means. What was that experience like? At midnight, as one day turned into the next, God struck them down. All the way from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. In other words, it doesn't matter how many rights or how much power or how much money or how successful you are, God took from you what was rightfully his even all of the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, before the sun even comes up the next morning. He and all of his servants and all of the Egyptians, they wake up in the night. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then Pharaoh broke his word to Moses at the end of chapter 11 and summoned him in face to face, even though he told Moses he would never see his face again. He says, Get up and go out from among my people. Get out of here, you and all of the people of Israel, and go. Serve Yahweh, as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So if this story isn't vivid enough for you, you can imagine that shortly after midnight, somebody woke up first. In the whole land of Egypt, there was one household where somebody woke up and they felt that quiet that you know about if you're a parent, where it's too quiet. Your hair kind of starts to stand on end, and you realize that normal movement, that normal kind of humming, low, white noise that you try to tune out all the time if you have kids at home but you get used to, it's absent from, from the house. Something isn't right. And so the parent creeps down the hallway, they push the door open, and where they had put their firstborn to bed that night, just hours before, now only a corpse lies in the bed. The response of that, the response of the weight of that kind of death of the soul puts a person immediately into grief and mourning. There's no way to handle this politely. The cry goes out from that household. In ancient Egypt, there's no noise of traffic or airplanes. I mean, that that sound would split the night through whatever city it happened in. People wake up in households on the left and right. They themselves get up. They wonder what the noise is. They realize their children haven't gotten out of bed. They walk down their own hallways to their own kids' rooms and find corpses of their own. And so their cry joins in with the first. And slowly, over a period of hours, the people of an entire nation must face the reality of death. And it breaks them. It breaks them in a way that none of the prior plagues have broken them. No threat of what God will do, no spiritual experience, not witnessing a miracle. These are not things that put people on their knees and made them ready to go God's way. It was loss and true brokenness that put them in a position to finally obey God's word. Death had finally arrived in Egypt. And you may not know this, I think you probably do, but death is coming for you and I as well. It's inevitable. I've heard people say before, being born has a 100% fatality rate. I think of it in these terms. 100 years from today, there will be all new people on this planet. In just 100 years. A flash in the pan in the grand scheme of eternity. Now, my intention is not to cause fear or anxiety in your heart or mind today, but I want you to realize your culture, the society that you live in, has no interest in talking to you about the end of your life. 
All your culture wants to do is sell you things that you believe will make your life better or make it go on longer. And the story of the Bible is comfortable confronting a reality about your heartbeat that eventually it will stop. So when we face death, many of us will face it in one of three ways. First is nihilism. Nihilism finds peace in hopelessness. You may know people like this. They've experienced such great loss or such great brokenness that they find that disengagement from any hope is the only way to survive life. The nihilist sees their death approaching and they just give up. The nihilist says, life is pointless and so I might as well die. Second, and this is probably more common given our demographic because this approach comes with youth oftentimes, is hedonism. Hedonists find peace in pleasure and in noise. The hedonist sees his death approaching and distracts himself so he doesn't have to think about it. The hedonist says, I live for today because I could die tomorrow. Finally, and this one is sadly much more acceptable in Western churches like ours, is moralism. Moralists find peace in their own performance, their own excellence. The moralist tries to live the best life he can so that God or whatever higher power, because this isn't exclusive to Christianity, will accept him when he dies. The moralist says, I live like I am dead now, restricting myself in every way in order to earn life after I've really died. When we consider our death, our temptation is to run into one of these three camps to medicate the feeling, the fear, the anxiety, the loss that we'll experience. We either want to prove ourselves to a higher power or we want to get as much fun and pleasure out of life as we possibly can or we're tempted to just give up and say, if it's coming eventually anyway, why would I try? Why would I work hard at anything that matters? The Passover, the prescriptive plan of God that he gives to his people in Exodus 12 is another way to navigate the reality of our own pending deaths. We can choose to go a fourth way. We can choose to go the way of sacrifice, to stand behind a substitute who can bear all the despair of the nihilist. That's what Jesus can do for you. He can actually take that despair away. He can defend the hedonist from his own strongest cravings, preventing those kinds of patterns of addiction that are so incredibly self-destructive. Jesus, who can unchain the moralist from his own self-exaltation and give the moralist something worth celebrating and worshiping instead. The Bible's word for this fourth way, this fourth chance, this thing that we are given by God, this opportunity to participate in our own salvation, the Bible's word is repentance. And that is what blood on the lentils and the doorway represents. It is the action of a a people who know that they are insufficient on their own to solve their own problems and need God's help to do that. Repentance is specifically what Pharaoh refused to participate in. All the way from the time that Moses met him first at the banks of the Nile River and introduced himself and introduced the concept of setting God's people free until this very night, Pharaoh has refused. He's come so close a couple of times to actually confessing what's wrong and asking Yahweh to change and save his life, but he won't really do it. He's unwilling to do it. Repentance is also the step that Timothy McVeigh refused to take until his own life was taken from him. If you think about the presence of the blood, a question that comes to my mind is, why does it have to be blood? Why, if Israel already belongs to God, why, if God has referred to Israel as his son the entire time that he's interacted with the Pharaoh in Egypt, why do they need a sacrifice? Are they not already a part of God's family? Are they not already as in as anybody can be in when it comes to spiritual connection to God, the living God, God our Father? I think that inclusion in God's salvation was not automatic for his people in Exodus. They themselves were also guilty. They themselves had practiced all kinds of human exaltation, all kinds of idol worship along with the Egyptians, and therefore they needed a sacrifice to go between them and God's anger as well. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. Yes, they are absolutely victims of oppression. I'm not trying to undermine that theme that we've seen. God is moving clearly and harshly against humans owning humans, against humans dehumanizing humans, against abuse and oppression wherever he finds it. But in the complexity of the humanity of the people of Israel, the fact that they were abused does not automatically exonerate them from their own crimes. You can be a victim and also be a culprit at the same time. In fact, most of us find ourselves in this way. We learn our patterns of sin from people who've abused us from generations before. We embody those things, though we hate them, and then we end up hating ourselves because we know that we've embodied them. Think of who has had the primary cultural influence on the household of God up to this point. The oppressors. The people of Israel... Do you think that they were gentle and kind because they grew up under the example of their slave masters? No. Were they deeply faithful to God, holding on belief that he would keep his covenant? No, they had forgotten his covenant to the point that he had to remind them about it when he introduced himself to Moses on the mountainside. They were not loving. They were not gentle. The fact that blood had to be spilled in their place communicates that in order for them to come through God's anger against their inner darkness, a death toll had to be paid. They are still God's beloved people. They are still the people God has chosen, but they are not without fault and sin, and therefore they will not pass through God's wrath without repentance. Lambs die in their place, and they are saved from God's judgment in the tenth plague. But even broader than that, if we can zoom out a little bit further, the full repentance, the full redemption of Israel is still unfinished business. Even at the end of chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 13, the people of God will finally leave Exodus. They'll wander out into the desert and follow him, and he'll do miracles and prove himself to them again and again. But they do not suddenly become perfect in their behavior. Their moral excellence doesn't just lock into place because they killed a lamb and painted their door with its blood. The entire rest of the Old Testament after Exodus is full of people who have access to this same ritual of sacrifice, Any of them can go first to a tabernacle and then eventually to a temple and kill an animal to cover over for their sin and to try to be changed and transformed, yet the earth is still covered in rampant wickedness to today. That's why men like Timothy McVeigh walk the face of this planet. Because a single sacrifice in ancient Egypt doesn't suddenly rewire all of the hearts of the people. It is sufficient for the people to pass through God's judgment. It allows them to participate in their salvation, but it doesn't immediately fix the broken decision-making of the human race. It does not, it cannot by itself, offer us a new and better way of life. It is by itself a part of and a step in God's plan to restore us. Now, if we can fast forward from Exodus chapter 12, about a thousand years... The second half of the Bible, what we call the New Testament, opens with a man who was born. A man who was waiting for God to finish what was unfulfilled in the sacrificial system of animal death. A man who realized there was more for God to do. There was an incompleteness. Though God had given sufficient examples and sufficient teaching and plenty of dissertation on his own law to teach people how to walk in righteousness, the battery, the motor inside of them was still relatively untouched by his grace and mercy in general. When that man, waiting and watching for God to finish the system that he started in Exodus 11, first encountered Jesus, he said this. When John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb. 
the same imagery, the same system God began in Exodus 11, Jesus is the lamb, not another lamb, not a good lamb, not the lambs of Exodus that are a sort of a short-term holdover where God is gracious and kind and waits. Jesus is the lamb, the last lamb, the last one that we'll ever need. Peter, a man who was well acquainted with failure, a man who even abandoned his faith in a moment of crisis, he wrote this. He said, we were ransomed from our futile ways which we inherited from our forefathers, from our families. Not with perishable things. We were not ransomed with money like silver and gold, but we were ransomed with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. A lamb. Even the Apostle Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb in his first letter to the new church in Corinth. For you and I today in 2021, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Maybe you're not interested in participating in that though. Maybe the blood, even some of the songs that we sang this morning are the thing that is most off-putting to you about God and his church. Maybe you're more interested in moral transformation or care of other human beings. You don't have to participate in repentance. Nobody will make you. Not today, not any other day at this church. We're not going to come over and interrogate you and figure out if you've been praying enough or the right way. You can face your own death with despair or you can try to medicate it with pleasure or you can demonstrate and wave your moral report card in God's face and see how far that gets you. But if I can speak for myself and those of us who know Jesus, we can sense, if we're honest with ourselves, that none of those ways lead to life. Repentance is the way that we participate in the death of Jesus and enter into life. And so I want you to understand four things about repentance. If you're taking notes, I recommend that you write these down. First is this. Repentance is primary. Repentance is the first step. It's the the starting point of a relationship between you and Jesus Christ. It's the very first step any human being can take in the process of their own salvation. It happens at the beginning. As God is bringing into existence his new nation, Israel, separating them out from Egypt, the very first thing he tells them to do is to participate in repentance. To kill the animal, to paint the blood, and then to stay inside and have faith that that action that God prescribed will be sufficient to to allow them to pass through God's wrath into life. Repentance is how a heart that has experienced its own darkness responds to the opportunity to be delivered from that darkness. You heard testimony, literal testimony of grace from three men moments before they were killed on death row today. Each of them attributing to Christ the only reason that they have any hope, any faith, any peace, standing closer to death than you and I have ever stood probably, and yet they are okay because Christ has been their sacrifice and they have repented. And repentance does not have to be showy. If you're new to church or new to the Bible or new to Jesus, you don't have to hang around here long enough to figure out how to weep and cry the right way to convince the rest of us that you've really repented. And you don't need to have all the answers. What does Yahweh tell Israel they have to do? Simply that they have to listen to him and do it his way. It's obedience. That he will explain how to repent to them, how to participate in his salvation of them, and for you and I, with Jesus having already done the work of the new covenant on the cross, Our first step to repent is to do that according to his instructions. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, the word is near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You will be saved. Repentance is confession that Jesus is who he says he is. Repentance is confession that 
Jesus has gone before you as a sacrificial lamb for your sin. It is very simply agreeing with God when he tells you about your own brokenness. And then agreeing with him that he has a plan to heal your soul. It starts with Jesus because repentance is primary. Second, repentance is perpetual. If you can look back at verse 24 for a second, I want to read it to you. God says this to his people by way of Moses. He says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons or your children, your progeny, forever. Forever meaning until the end of all time. Even after Yahweh keeps his word and brings his people into the land of promise, it will still be necessary for them to observe this practice of public repentance. This is more than just a means to an end for them. Repentance is, and I think this is a common misunderstanding we may have, so I want to say this to you in a way that you can really grasp. Repentance is more than a one-time singular event in your life that leads into salvation. It is that. It's never less than that, but it's meant to be much more than that. Repentance is not something that we just do at church so that we can get rid of our guilt and get back to the parts of life that really matter to us. Repentance for the disciple of Jesus is the part of life that really matters because it's where the restoration of the relationship happens. And if you are following Jesus in truth, then he's the beginning and end of all of the good that happens in any part of your life. He's all that matters. It's all about him. So if we want to be known by God, if we want to be loved by God, connected to God, then repentance remains the cornerstone of that relationship. Repentance indicates the posture of our spirit. It's a posture of remorse, of apology, but also of hope and faith because we believe that we can be forgiven, that the mistakes we make will no longer define us. For Israel, this was intended to happen annually. It was supposed to be a national event, an observation in the life of their country. But for you and I, in the life of the disciple of Jesus, this is daily. It happens even more common for us, even more frequently. We don't have to wait for some kind of ceremonial mercy to come down from God once a year as we hold a feast together. We have direct access to God through the Spirit of God who moves into the heart of every disciple of Jesus. We will fail. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe no Christian has ever acknowledged that to you. It seems obvious to me. We will fail again. We will make more mistakes. And so we will repent again. And we will know that we are still forgiven because we've accepted that forgiveness from God. It's his business. And then when we fail again, we will repent again. And we will know that we are forgiven again every time. This is the daily life of the disciple of Jesus because repentance is perpetual. Third, repentance is public. This one is almost too obvious for me to mention, but I'll just tell you that I think that I need to because I cannot really find an attitude of public repentance anywhere in our culture. This feels like a thing that only Christians really understand and maybe a lot of us even then don't. As an example, the closest I've seen of public repentance in the last probably five years is the sort of half-hearted apology that you get from a YouTube content creator on their YouTube channel. You know what I'm talking about? Some old prejudice that they tweeted when they were 16 gets brought back up to the surface and they have to do this sort of going through the motions false apology and you can tell they don't mean it because they barely say I'm sorry. They'll talk to the camera, hey guys, it's me. I know a lot of you guys have been wondering when this is going to happen, and this is just so hard for me, and da 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 And then the, like two days later, they're just right back in their content creation mode. They never talk about it again. They don't acknowledge it. And then eventually, the video just disappears from their feed, or the comments are turned off, which is a great way to know that they're just doing it to go through the motions. I think that's discipled you and I. I think between that, the 24-hour news cycle, and the way that our politicians aggressively go after each other and make way more excuses than apologies, I think we've been discipled to believe 
that repentance is something that we just do in private and we do it as little as possible and we get it over with so we can get back to the public-facing parts of our life that we like. And if I'm wrong, that's great. Maybe I need different friends, but the people who are around me live that way. And they seem to expect that from me because when I'm ready to repent publicly, it's almost offensive. It's almost like if I just took my clothes off at dinner at their house. It's a little more than they were bargaining for, okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Roughly two billion people on the face of this planet claim Christ as their own. A third of the population. I don't know if you know that or not. Why is our posture collectively so often that of the self-righteous judge instead of the repentant sinner? Why is it easy for us to lose grasp of this? How do we expect to ever welcome any broken person into Jesus' life if we spend all of our time gatekeeping and slamming doors on people? Just... I hope this jumps off the page at you, but in case it doesn't, where specifically did God command Israel to put the blood onto their homes? Did he tell them to write out their sins in their prayer journal in blood, privately close it and never tell anybody? No. He said, put it above the door. Do you know which way the door faces on your house? It faces the road, where the traffic is, where the people go. In brushing blood over their doors, the Israelites communicated their need to be saved, their need to be bailed out, to be forgiven, and to be allowed into a mercy that they could never deserve, that they ultimately have no authority over. That communication did not happen in secret prayer. That communication happened out front, facing the road for everybody to see. The lambs were killed outside. It's a loud, gory, visceral work. It was done publicly. Many, many people in the West have misunderstood faith in Jesus as supposed to be private somehow. We use the word personal a lot. You'll hear that a lot even in this church, and I think it's a good word when we know what we mean by it, but I'm afraid we've misdefined personal to mean private. So personal that nobody else gets to be involved in it, and that's not the prescription of the Bible. We need to seriously reconsider the form our repentance presents itself in. Because what I think is that we're scared for people to see us do this. I think we're afraid of what will happen in our relationships if we willingly admit fault. We've taken maybe the few times that Jesus taught that we should pray or fast privately and and we've misinterpreted those to mean that no one should ever hear us talk about our faith. Yet Israel is commanded to participate in their own salvation publicly. Yahweh told them, wipe the blood on your house. Tell the neighbors, let them see Give them room to wonder what it is about you that needs salvation so badly that you would ask for forgiveness where other people can see and hear you do so. Repentance is public. Finally, repentance takes practice. Nobody's good at saying I'm sorry, especially not the first time. It's awkward. We fear that if we admit wrongdoing or weakness, the other person might take advantage of us. Maybe you've lived that before. You've been in a position where you did your absolute best to make peace with another person and all they did was crush you down into your own misbehavior. Repentance with Jesus is different. Because repentance with Jesus is not us confirming the suspicions of another people. It's us saying about ourselves what Jesus has always known about us. It's not new information. It doesn't change our standing with God to tell him the truth about ourselves. Your repentance does not create a toxic power dynamic between you and God. God is not waiting for you to admit you were wrong so he can pounce on you and tear you apart. He already knows. He's always known the worst parts of you. He's known them before you were even mature enough to acknowledge them in yourself. 
And he's already acting toward you with love and kindness in spite of that. Admitting those wrongs will not change that relationship. All it will do is solidify for you that the love and kindness that God has been speaking about is actually functionally real because you'll experience it. You saying sorry gives you a chance to experience God's forgiveness. It doesn't make God more forgiving. He's not angry. He's not waiting to to brutalize you or else. He's already been kind to you. The fact that you're hearing this today in this room, gathered with other people who are trying to submit themselves to Jesus, is an act of mercy in your life. Your repentance will take practice. It will take repetition and endurance. And you'll be tempted along the way back to those three ways to respond to death. You'll be tempted into despair. You may be close to others who will not repent. You'll suffer as you watch them try to resist God, though God is irresistible. And you will find that your pride is far stronger and far more deeply rooted than you expected, than you would have ever thought possible. Our goal, church, in repentance is not perfection, it's participation. We practice repentance as a discipline of spiritual renewal, of new life, because it's available to us in Jesus' sacrificial death. And when you repent and you find that you don't immediately feel all that different, remember, your repentance takes practice. Repentance is the message that we have for our world. It's what we invite others into. We invite them to participate in their own salvation, in their own new life. One of my heroes of the faith, he's retired now, but he was a pastor in Nashville for many years, a man named Ray Ortland used to read a blessing over his congregation before every service. And so I want to leave you with these words, and I want to ask you to just try to connect with the posture of repentance that the church ought to demonstrate to a lost world. Pastor Ray would say this, To all who are weary and who need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mighty friend of sinners. Let me pray for you. Father, may that be our reputation that we are an easy group of people to be with because we know that we are wrong and we are prepared to acknowledge that. May we go before those in our community and our families who need to repent when we demonstrate to them that that's not a pompous religious act, but it's admission of the guilt that we're aware of. God, would you give us the strength? Would you strengthen our spirits by the work of Jesus to be able to endure this kind of work? Would you give us grace and mercy for each other? May we, by by representing you as people who try to embody your life, God, may we be just as forgiving as you have been of us. That will be the hardest part of this. As we face down people who have wronged us, who have attacked us, who have taken pieces of us that we'll never get back, may we trust that you have what we need and that you will provide for us and that it is not our role to demand from another a thing that they could never give us back in the first place. Father, we love you. We want to be people defined by and shaped by grace and mercy. We trust that you will do these things, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.